0: with one investor it is less work on my end but it's not a whole lot of less work after the deal closes before we get into today's episode i want to mention today's best ever partner and give you a free gift and that partner is fun that flip and they're going to be giving you a free deal analysis spreadsheet You know who Fund That Flip is, don't you? Because you're a loyal best-ever listener. They've got a sponsor on the show. Matt Rodak, the founder of Fund That Flip, has been on the podcast multiple times, giving us his insight on the online lending process. Fund That Flip provides fast, reliable funding for your house flip projects. They're an online platform, makes the application process entirely easy, and they've got a whole bunch of experts on their team who can help you get funding in twenty four hours and close within as few as seven days. And all of you best ever listeners, you're getting a free spreadsheet to help you analyze your projects. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. That's fundthatflip.com that forward slash best ever. And you'll get a free deal analysis tool. It'll help you provide a scope of work for your projects, create the scope of work analyze the profitability of the project or if it's not profitable you need to know that too and make a determination on the max purchase price super important you can print out all the detailed reports and that will help you get your deals funded faster. Go to fundnetflip.com forward slash best ever. Get that free analysis tool, fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest-running daily real estate podcast. We don't get into any fluffy stuff. We only talk about the best advice that moves your real estate investing business forward. Today is Friday. Therefore, we're gonna do an episode of Follow Along Friday. I am joined by Theo Hicks and my dog and Colleen's dog Jack. <laughs> How you doing, Theo? Doing good, Joe. Doing good. How you doing, Jack?
1: Scruffles is doing good ah, too. Theo' nickname, <laughs> our
0: dog Scruff. Actually, every dog. Every is dog Scruffles. is Scruffles. Every dog is Scruffles. By the way, best ever listeners, if you're joining us via the podcast then what you've noticed recently is that we're doing follow along friday live from my office and you can always listen and watch follow along friday on monday at ten fifteen a.m eastern standard time on our facebook page which is facebook.com forward slash meet joe Fairless. and then that video is uploaded on our youtube channel shortly thereafter on monday So with that being said, we'll dive right in. Today we're going to be focused on what we usually are focused on, our entrepreneurial endeavors, what happened over the last week or so. Mm -hmm. And then we're also going to talk about some questions that were emailed to us about multifamily syndication from someone who is getting started in multifamily syndication and had some questions. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be answering those
1: questions. So, Theo, how do you want to kick it off? Well, do you want to start with, we've got a little a new edition today of a blank board. Oh, want, yes, uh, yes. I know our, our first podcast was, our first live podcast was talking about that. So I know you've got this end of the month, mm-hmm. things are changing up a little bit, so you want to just briefly kind of touch on the idea behind the end of the month on your board? Yes, for anyone listening, you can visualize this very easily
0: there is a blank board behind us (laughs) a blank whiteboard I have a couple whiteboards in my office and one of them has 2017 goals and then another has some shorter term goals that are projects that I want to accomplish and then the other whiteboard has the monthly goals that I'm focused on for that month And right now is the monthly goal board is blank Mm -hmm. because it's at the end of the month and I accomplished some things and I didn't accomplish others and I'll be happy to talk through those. From a macro level, this was the most successful business month in my life by far and the main reason is because we closed late last month so i'm kind of grouping it into this month late last month on a 200 unit in dallas and then on top of that we have two properties that are under contract over 500 units combined in dallas and i have already secured the equity for those two properties and it is over $11 million worth of equity that I've secured from a private high net worth investor. And typically, if I don't secure it from one high net worth investor, then I'll go out to my network of investors who I work with and have a good relationship with. And there are more individuals And this actually brings up a question that is commonly asked Mm -hmm. but isn't something that was emailed to us. But I just hear it often. In fact, I answered this question for one of my investors just last week. And that is, would you rather have one investor or would you rather have multiple investors in your deal? And to me, it's a toss-up because with one investor, it is less work. On my end but it's not a whole lot of less work after the deal closes because how I do ongoing communication is via mail chip. so it's just typing an email regardless if it's the one person or multiple people yeah. and then I send it out so that's the same amount of work and then accounting at the end it's multiple K ones versus one K one and our accountant does that so really Other than after we close, it's about the same amount of work when you have, say, 50 investors versus one investor, as long as the project is going according to plan. If the project is not going according to plan, then I imagine you'll have a lot of investors asking you questions, therefore, that's a lot of extra time that it'll take to field those questions as they should ask questions if it's not going according to plan. But assuming that the project does go according to plan, then it really is a toss-up because when you have multiple investors, you also get more word-of-mouth referrals. Mm -hmm. And through more word-of-mouth referrals, your private investor network grows, again, assuming that you're doing a a phenomenal job. But the same could be argued with the one high-net-worth investor if and when you excel in that project, then they might be inclined to refer you to others and their others are likely going to be at or around the same level as they are. Therefore, that one referral might equal a lot more equity than 50 referrals from other investors. It really, to me, I am indifferent towards one investor versus a lot of investors Mm -hmm. because I think it's a toss-up. But it is nice to have a mix, and the reason why I say this is the most successful month in my business is because I have a nice mix of we just had a a project, this 200 unit that we closed last month, and there were multiple investors versus this project where there will be one investor and his family. Plus, it's the largest equity raise that I've been Involved in $11.5 million equity raise is the largest I've been involved in personally, or responsible for, I should say, for bringing. And any questions about that? I can see you thinking. Well, well, I was going to ask
1: about if you've got multiple investors versus just a singular investor. I guess this would kind of question me based off your experience. This month, you said that you've got these two deals lined up and all the equity is completely raised. Is that standard for most deals, that you'll have all the equity raised before you actually close on the deal? Is yeah. That, so that happens every single time? Before we
0: close on a deal, okay. Abs- absolutely. Okay. Yes, we'll always have the equity secured and deposited before we close. Okay. And there might be a circumstance where we can close on a deal, but perhaps an investor with a self-direct IRA wasn't able to transfer accounts, or maybe have someone had a life circumstance come up who... Thought they would be investing, but were not able to, or an investor at a million was needing to decrease it to five hundred thousand at the last minute, and in those cases, we will likely have the funds to close, and we'll continue to raise a little bit after to cover the difference. And the reason why we would be able to close in that unique situation is because. We only need... I say only. We only need a certain amount to close with the lender and to actually close the deal. But then we have an operating account that we need Mm -hmm. afterwards. We have reserves that we'll need to have a certain amount. We'll need... If we are bringing all of the equity for renovations up front, Mm -hmm. then we'll need the renovation dollars if it's not a bridge loan or something where we're getting future funding. So technically... On all of our deals, we could close without completing the raise, but it's not a best practice and it's not something that we do typically, although that has come up in one situation where we had some unique scenarios and it was actually the last deal and we had to close it out a little bit after because of some things with a couple investors
1: who committed but weren't able to um, actually invest. Okay, so all the money is raised regardless if it's one person or 10 people investing, so I guess the question is, is in my mind, it seems kind of obvious what the answer is. But I'm just curious, based on your experience, how much more effective and, I guess, more smooth is the money-raising process when you have just one person, it's like, I'll do it, like, all right, cool, then you're just done, versus having to do maybe 10 people who aren't all coming at once, and maybe you're, at the last minute, you need one more person to come in. I guess, like, from a psychological standpoint, when you're maybe anxious or stressed out when it's getting towards the end, is it easier just to have one person do it all, versus having to kind of scramble to get multiple people together? Or is that something you don't even face?
0: Well, it is something that at this point, if there's a gap, then we already invest at least $100,000 of our own money in the deals. Okay. Every deal, at least $100,000. Okay. And if there is a gap larger than that, we might cover it. We meaning Mm -mm. my business partner and I might cover it. That's number one. Number two is, yes, and it goes back to there's certainly a different time commitment. That's what I was saying. Before the deal closes, there's a different time commitment versus one investor versus multiple. But after the deal closes, it's a toss-up. The toss-up, okay. Yeah, but but leading up to the closing and having 50 different conversations versus one conversation, absolutely, that's a different time commitment. But then the positive of having 50 investors versus one is you've got the positive word of mouth. So you do more work upfront, but you have perhaps higher upside potential on referrals afterwards, and then vice versa, less work, but perhaps fewer referrals. But then I was mentioning earlier, perhaps that one referral that that high net worth investor has might be another individual like him or her, and that might be worth 50 referrals that you got from the larger group. Okay. You never know.
1: Okay. So from your perspective, you're kind of indifferent to it, but since you're kind of experienced, what would you recommend to the newer investor? Would you have them approach it as just get as many investors as you can, or do you have them approach it as find one person up front? I would have a newer
0: investor approach it to just get the deal done. Whatever it takes, whether it's one investor or multiple investors, whatever you can do to add value to whomever's lives to get the deal done doesn't matter okay. don't have a strategy on one versus many just have a strategy to get it, get, it, get, yeah, it get
1: the equity okay. race yeah okay I guess that was just macro level but more detailed why because we're all about consistent daily action for the board you know I know they, the people that are watching it can't see it because it's blank and the people that are listening obviously can't see it either but before you had you know, the different categories set up and the check marks and the boxes and that was the first time you did that so the first time you did the checkmark board, best business month ever, any relationship between the two? Did doing this add value to your, yes. your business in any way, if so?
0: Yeah, I, absolutely. And best ever listeners and everyone watching next week, because that will be in February, you'll see my February goals and you'll see how I break those out. Because okay. I did learn a couple things on the goal tracker. And by the way, this was the first time I had this in this office. But I've done this before. When I lived in New York City and I had my own room, <laughs> it's so strange. Living in New York City, you have your own room. <laughs> yeah. When I moved to Cincinnati, I lived with my girlfriend, now fiance, Colleen, and, and it was a small apartment that we were renting before we moved into a house that we bought. So I didn't want to plaster my goal sheets up on our wall. You want to freak her out too early. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. So I did this when I had my own room living in East Village in New York City. I had the same exact thing up. and It was great. So I've done it before. What I've learned is Mm -hmm. when I have a vision board that is a poster on the wall and when you lose sight of where you're headed... You can just look right up here and identify what you should be focused on. And here's an example. Last night, Colleen and I were talking, and she asked, what should my February goals be? Mm. And instead of saying, I think your goals should be XYZ, all I asked was, what are your 2017 goals? And she said what her 2017 goal was. And then I was like, well, I think it should be something that tracks to that 2017 goal. And I won't use her example because those are her goals, but one example for Best Ever Listeners might be if your goal is to wholesale 10 houses a month by December of 2017, then if you're wholesaling two houses a month now, then what I would do is I would identify what are the lead generation methods that you're getting the houses Mm -hmm. and what are the lead generation methods that you're getting the buyers and make it a point to do those things consistently every week and have some sort of check mark process to do. And so that is how I approach the whiteboard and my monthly goals. And as far as just to close the loop on other things that made this the most successful month ever from a business standpoint it was the largest equity raise 11.5 that i've done and by the way we haven't closed yet we close next month so if something unforeseen or that we're not anticipating happens this month something in the due diligence process environmental issue something then the deals aren't happening okay so i'm not counting my chickens before they hatch i'm just simply saying where i'm at right now So that's number one. But additionally, what happened this month is January is actually the most amount of downloads that this podcast has had. We're averaging over 6,000 a day. Mm. So there are over 6,000 best ever listeners every single day listening to the show. That's amazing. Yeah. And this time last year, because I track this every month, this time last year, there were 3,000. It is doubled, doubled from this time last year. And the thing I'm curious about and we'll see is this time, a year from now, will it have doubled or will it have gone up by 3,000? Will it go to 9,000 uh, yeah. or will it go to 12,000? We'll, we'll see. But okay. combine that with on the whiteboard and best of listeners, you can always go back and look at the videos from our last couple weeks and you can see the actual whiteboard if you want to. But on there is also have a magical moment with yep. Colleen and the magical moment terminology comes from being a Tony Robbins student and that magical moment was going to a Dashboard confessional concert yes, yeah. was awesome. <laughs> here in Cincinnati, which was interesting. It felt like she and I have been going out for like two years almost, almost okay. two years and it felt like one of our first dates is just really yeah. fun doing something like that and so... It was by far the most successful professionally,
1: and then also personally, it was, it was a lot of fun. Awesome. That's cool. That's awesome hearing that you've doubled your, doubled we, your downloads in a year. We, we have doubled, du- doubled the best ever downloads yes. in a year. Yes, you were part of it. Just from your perspective, three years ago, raising $0 to $11.5 million a month, it's pretty amazing. So That's awesome. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So maybe next week when we see this up here, we can maybe talk about the board a little bit more, doing a dive into these, Let's do these two questions. So these are questions from a best-ever listener
0: from Madison, Wisconsin. Yep. First name's Tim. I uh, won't say last name for privacy reasons. And it's hard, and it's hard to pronounce anyways. <laughs> wow. And he is asking... Wait, I'll let you set the stage.
1: So he says that he's starting on a path of multifamily syndication. He's actually going to be closing on a... Hunter unit in a few days from when he sent this email. He said he's made some connection. He's working with a great property management company who is managing several Hunter units, and I guess through their relationship, through conversations, it's kind of organically grown into more of a partnership and less of a employee-employer relationship. And so he's got two questions on how to structure this syndication deal or just syndication deals in general since this his first one. And the first question he has is, What do you typically do for the loan guarantor? Do you personally guarantee the loan, or do all investors take part in the loan guarantee? So, Joe, do you want to, I guess, first set the context for what he's actually talking about, and then answer his question?
0: Yep, context for what he's talking about is when we get any loan, whether it's single family or multifamily or commercial, there needs to be some sort of accountability for borrowing the money from the lender and the lender wants a guarantee from the individual or entity that is borrowing the money unless it is what's called a non-recourse loan, which means that the lender cannot go after you as a borrower unless, and there's a couple disclaimers, one is they call them bad boy carve-outs unless the bad boy carve-outs or clauses are triggered, and a couple bad boy carve-outs or clauses would be gross negligence, so if the borrower just completely forsakes the property, pieces out, goes to another country and abandons it, then they can make the loan recourse, even though it's non-recourse, or fraud. If you're doing something illegal and you are caught doing the legal activity then the non-recourse can become recourse and there are other technical things Mm -hmm. that make it a non-recourse recourse but the reality is those are the two big ones that you'll hear about and that are probably triggered the most but what tim is asking about is what do you typically do for the loan guarantor so that question implies that he is not the loan guarantor that he brings someone else in and it's different if it's recourse versus non-recourse Okay. because if it's recourse, meaning they can go after the loan guarantor and why you have a loan guarantor is you don't have the liquidity and or net worth to qualify for the loan that's a problem I had whenever I got started and that's a problem that 95% 95% of people have when they get started is they don't have the money in their bank post funding to qualify for the liquidity and net worth requirements okay. the lender has. So, what do you typically do for the loan guarantor? Well, if it's recourse, then you're going to give them more. If it's non recourse, you're going to give them less because non recourse, they have limited liability unless you. Neglect the property, gross neglect, or you commit fraud. So what we have done with our loan guarantors is we have given them equity in the general partnership and or, depending on the deal, we have also given them a fee that's paid out on an annual basis based on the amount of the loan at that point in time. And that fee specifically... Tim on a non-recourse loan is 0.25 of a percent. So let's just use round numbers. If it's a million dollar loan balance, and if they signed it as a guarantor on a non-recourse loan, then one percent of a million is 10 grand, and so it'd be $2,500 a year that the loan guarantor would pay. And so multiply that. If it's a $10 million loan, then it'd be $25,000 that they would receive every year for signing their name on the loan documents. In addition, they might get equity in the deal. And this depends on you and Hmm. how you negotiate what the projected returns are for the deal and how much you want to get the deal done and how many other options you have to guarantee the loan. It could be any number of percentages from 5% to 10% to whatever. It just depends. Now, that is with a non-recourse loan. We do not have any recourse loans. Therefore, I don't have any personal experience working with someone on a recourse basis. I can tell you, though, just common sense is whatever I just said, probably double it at least. Okay. Because if they're personally guaranteeing it then there's more risk should something go wrong. And you'll just have to talk to them about what they're looking for. And I've told people about this approach and what you compensate a loan guarantor, and some people are like, wow, 25,000 for writing your name and submitting your financials on a non-recourse loan of 10 million, get 25,000 a year, that's amazing. Yes, but think about what they're risking, mm-hmm. even though it's non-recourse and it's a very remote possibility. But think about what they're risking—ten million dollars potentially—in return, which is twenty-five thousand a year. I mean, risking twenty-five yeah. percent. Yeah, but on a ten million-dollar loan, that's twenty-five k a year. Yeah. I would do it if I didn't do the syndications. I would be a loan guarantor, but I'd have to make sure I know the individuals really Mm -hmm. well, and I'd have to look at it on a project-by-project basis, because I do think it's a very good deal for high net worth investors or individuals to do a loan guarantee on a non-recourse loan and get free equity and also get free cash flow. When I say free, I mean you're exchanging your balance sheet for this. But at the same time, there is risk involved, as with anything that we do in real estate. And I would look at it on a project by project basis. But it certainly is appealing to high net worth individuals, Tim, and the rest of the best ever listeners. And
1: those are specific ways that you compensate them. Would there ever be a situation where someone that was investing in the deal was also the the loan guarantor? Yeah, we have. Yeah.
0: Yeah. In fact, that's exactly what we do. Okay. We have had. Investors who invest in deal as a limited partner also be on the general partnership
1: side as a loan guarantor with us. Okay, and then to kind of answer this, but would you ever in the future personally guarantee your own loan that you raise money for? Would you? Oh, we do. Okay. In addition, yes, we also sign
0: on the loan in addition to the investor who has the balance sheet to
1: get approved for a sizable loan. Okay. But they're a clarifying question because I personally don't know a lot about this. Maybe other people don't either. But it doesn't have to be one person. Can it can be like this person. You need a million dollars. This person right here has got 250. This person's got 300. This person's got 450. Seem to three different people, or does it all have to it be, be one individual? It can be a combo. Okay.
0: In this case, definitely the fewer the people, the better. Okay. Because of financials and legal paperwork, and it gets messy. It's a lot of stuff to go through. So I would keep it to
1: one if possible but it can be a combination okay i think we adequately answered that question cool In the short term it depends because of all the different things that you explained so the second question is about equity percentage so what equity percentage do you typically take for organizing and putting the deal together so the acquisition fee mm-hmm. well is that what that is no He's asking
0: about the equity that we get in the deal, not necessarily the acquisition fee. Acquisition fee is the fee mm. on front that's paid. Okay. He's wondering how much equity do we actually have in the deal. Okay. And the answer to that question, Tim, is it depends on you and your investors. I'll tell you what we do. Again, it depends on the deal. But so far, we have done 8% preferred return and a 70-30 split. to limited partners, 30% to general partners. So the 8% preferred return, that is 8% paid to investors on their investment dollars first, and then after that, profits are split 70-30 on the cash flow. It varies greatly from the syndicator or sponsor to their experience level to the project Because I see tons of deals come across my desk. I've seen 12% preferred return Mm. on deals and a 50-50 split on development deals because the development deals have higher risk than what we do. We buy stabilized apartment communities that have value-add components, whereas development deals, they're on the riskier side but higher potential for reward, therefore... The developers, when I first got started, I could never understand how they are able to offer a higher preferred return on something that doesn't exist when we do an 8%. Well, how they're able to do that is they simply don't pay out the 12% preferred return in the first two years while it's being constructed and leased up. And the 12% is accrued okay. to years 3 After it's stabilized, and then their investors, in theory, receive the windfall of everything that they have been accruing, and then after that, it's a 50-50 split. Mm -hmm. And then I've seen on deals, 5% preferred return and 80-20. 80% limited partnership, 20% general partnership, and those are on Class A apartment communities. Or they're simply with an operator who wants to have more cash flow from the preferred return because the preferred return hurdle is less so he or she will receive more cash flow even though it's 80 20. it just depends on how you want to structure it you're only limited by your creativity and what the market will command and what your investors goals are so what i would do for anyone starting out or for you tim who is closing on your 100 unit, congratulations by the way on that 100 unit that you're closing on, what I would do is I would identify where are you at in your business evolution and most likely, it sounds like you're at the beginning, therefore is cash flow more important to you than money in five years? Hmm. If it is, then perhaps have uh, acquisition fee that is 3% and a smaller equity split On the back end, so what industry standard is on acquisition fee, which is the fee you get paid at closing, is anywhere between 1 to – I've heard Dave Lindahl talk about 5%, 1 to 5%. We charge 2%. Maybe do 3% acquisition fee to get cash flow up front for your business, but then have a 8% preferred return and maybe 85%, 15% equity split with investors. That way you get paid a little bit more up front to help with your cash flow as you build your business, but you don't get as much later and it balances out what the fees are because you're giving them more equity in the deal, but you're taking a little bit more at the beginning if you're looking to build your business and you need cash flow. And then vice versa, as you continue to grow your business, then less of an acquisition fee Maybe down to 2.5% or even 2% what we do, but do a 60-40 split with investors or 65-35, 70-30 split, or even have performance hurdles. We do performance hurdles in most of our deals where it's a 8% preferred return, 70-30 split, but then if and when we reach a certain internal rate of return to investors, then maybe it's 60-40 and if we reach another internal rate of return to investors upon disposition, then it's
1: 55-45 or 50-50. Are these splits, these 70-30 splits, are those the equity splits that will come once the property is sold at the end? Yes. And is it also after the investor gets their 8% return, everything on top of that gets split 70-30 or is that something different? It's upon disposition of the property. Okay. Because
0: when you, the internal rate of return is zero until the investors get their money back. Yeah. And it's not likely all capital will be returned until the disposition of the property or some incredible refinance. An example is a 250 units that we bought 16 months ago. We just did a refinance on that last month, so 15 months later... And we returned 36.5% of investor equity okay. that they had invested in the deal. So in total, with including preferred returns and that deal, we've returned almost 50% of investor equity, and it's been 16 months. And that's a phenomenal deal for investors, but it's still not 100% of their money. So most likely the return of capital 100% of capital will be on disposition or the the sale of a property therefore the hurdles will take place on
1: the sale of the property if they're tied to internal rate of returns so let's say the property cash flow is let's say 10% what happens that 2% difference or what does that go to if it's 70 30 then 70 cents of the
0: 2% I thought. go to limited partners, and $0.30 cents of the 2% go to
1: general partnership. Okay, totally that makes sense. So I guess it looks like we addressed his question about equity percentages. Do you want to go into the other types of syndication fees? Do you want to touch on that? Uh, yeah, I talked
0: about acquisition fee. There's a lot of different Program types of fees. fees that can be charged, but you got to use common sense, and you've got to make sure that the investment is very very profitable for the limited partners your investors first and foremost so i will say another type of fee will be asset management fee and i've seen a couple different ways it's charged we do two percent of total income on a monthly basis that comes into the property so if it is a hundred thousand dollars and in collected income for that month, then the asset management fee for that month would be $2,000. I've seen other operators charge $250 per unit per year, which I'm not a fan of because it doesn't have an alignment of interest mm-hmm. with investors or the project. Because regardless of the performance of the project, they're still charging their $250 per unit per year, whereas when you are compensated, Based on the performance of the project and the income that comes in, then there's alignment. Those are the three main ones. Equity in the deal, asset management, acquisition, and if you have a loan guarantor, then a loan guarantee fee, and we talked about that. If you own your own property management company, then certainly having a property management fee included. Whatever the market rate is, depending on the size of the property, it could be anywhere between 3% if it's 500 unit portfolio, or maybe 6-7% if it's a smaller building, or maybe even 8% if it's uh, 8 unit or something. I know with my single family homes, I pay 8% property management fee with our apartment communities. We pay 4% in mm-hmm. most cases, 4 to 4.5% in most cases. On top of that, if you have a construction company, which you likely will if you have a property management company, then you can charge a fee, and you should charge a fee for the construction oversight and overseeing the turnovers of the units, the renovations, the construction projects. We don't charge for that because we have a third-party property management company, but they do have a built-in cost. So it is a pass-through cost, uh, but we don't make any money on that. We work with third-party management companies. Those are the main ways. The acquisition, asset management, having equity in the deal, loan guarantee if there is one to your loan guarantee partner, as well as if you have a property management company, then there's a 4 to 8% fee and then a construction oversight fee, which varies depending on the group.
1: Yeah, it seems like it's important to take these fees into account when you're actually writing the numbers. Because you said, you don't want to get kind of carried away with these fees. That's something that will negatively affect the limited partners. And so we got to make yeah. sure that they're taken care of first before you start kind of collecting the fees for yourself. Does that make yeah, it's
0: all, sense? It's, it's all, yeah, it really is. It's, it's running a business and knowing that everybody needs to make money, especially your clients. Just like every successful company in the world, they deliver more value than they receive. You <clears> deliver more value to your customer, and in this case, multifamily syndication, then they're going to want to continue. They're going to give you referrals they're going to talk to more people and then the more and more deals you do your network and your net worth exponentially grows cool
1: so yeah there's this question he said thanks in advance talk about how you subscribe to our podcast he's going to listen to all 900 episodes that's going to be wow a good endeavor <laughs> get after it tim So yeah, he said he hasn't been able to find answers to these questions, so they are. All right,
0: well, Best Ever listeners, hope you enjoyed the show. If you haven't signed up for the Best Ever Conference, go do it. We want to see you in Denver, Colorado, or at least go watch the hip-hop videos at besteverconference.com and you will enjoy Mm -hmm. and be entertained by those videos. I can promise you that. Hope to see you there February 24th and 25th. And if you like what you heard, then make sure you're subscribing to the podcast. And if you're watching it, then make sure you're subscribing to either the YouTube channel or the Facebook page. I hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Remember to get your free deal analysis tool for your flips at fundthatflip.com forward slash bestever. That's F-U-N-D-T-H-A-T-F-L-I-P.com forward slash bestever. It will detail your scope of work. Help you analyze if the project's profitable and make a determination on the max purchase price. Fund that forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, it is here. Well, it's almost here. February 24th and 25th. The conference, the best ever conference. Have you signed up yet? Oh, if you haven't, you better sign up right now. It's gonna sell out. Besteverconference.com. I'm gonna be there. A bunch of the guests who you've heard interviewed on the show are going to be there. Just go to besteverconference.com and look at all the speakers that you're going to hear from that will help you move your business forward in 2017. I want to meet you in person. The best ever guests who are speaking at this event want to meet you in person. And people who haven't been interviewed on this podcast who are speaking at the conference, they want to meet you in person. Go to besteverconference.com.